Let's turn to God's Word, to the passage that was read, Luke chapter 2. And let me just begin in prayer. Lord, this is your Word. It's a very familiar story to us. We pray that you would help us as we reflect upon it. Lord, some of us come to you in doubt and fear, and we ask that you would come to us that we might hear and know your good news. Some of us come angry and self-absorbed and full of self-pity. We pray also that we would look, be able to look beyond ourselves and see the baby in the manger. Some of us, O oh Lord, come with great burdens for friends, for family, for our city, our country, our, our world. And we pray again that we would hear that there is good news, not that we wish there would be, but that we would know that there is. And we pray that you would lift all of us out of our self-absorption and our self-righteousness and our self-pity, and that we would look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In your name we ask it. Amen. Okay, um, these are very, very familiar words. It is uh, Luke's gospel is, as Luke says at the beginning, it's a collection of different sources. And in chapter 1, you have a couple of different stories. And in chapter 2, you have a, a, a third story, which um, some people believe that Luke's chief eyewitness, chief source in this was actually Mary herself. But we, we don't know that. But what it is in verses 8 to verse 20, it's a very... Uh, succinct and very short account of the birth of Jesus. It's just a, a handful of verses in a gospel that contains over a thousand verses about the birth of Jesus. And yet, as I said last week, quoting Martin Luther, that uh, we need to reflect and to think more and more upon what we call the incarnation actually means. I, there's a couple of poems I was going to read. I'm just going to read one later on, but there's one, if you've got time to, to Google it or look it up, C.S. Lewis has a poem called The Turn of the Tide, which is about this uh, event occurring. And the whole idea of the turn of the tide is that things are pretty miserable in this society, things are pretty miserable in the world at this time. For 400 years, there has been no prophecy. There is no sign of the Messiah coming. The Romans rule the world. Uh, God's ancient people, the, the Jewish people, have largely turned away from him in so many ways and uh, are very confused and have all different kinds of ideas. And it doesn't look great at all. Things are going really, really badly. And Lewis points out that the birth of Jesus is the turn of the tide where things change and where this good news comes into the world. So I want to begin, I just want to take a short time just to do two things. One is just simply to ask what happened because it's amazing how many things we presuppose. Like, you know the story with the wise men, the three wise men. We know there were three wise men, except we don't because the Bible doesn't say that. Now, um, what one of the children said there, you see, I thought, I know this story inside out. There is nothing as I prepare for this that I can learn in terms of the actual facts of the story. So many times. And yet, um, I think it was Fraser who said, 
that Jesus was born in a stable. Yeah, yeah, he was, wasn't he? But you look at the Bible, you will never find anywhere in the Bible that Jesus was born in a stable. It doesn't say that. It's just, it shows you how things come in. That we, it says that he was in a manger and people assume it, it could have been a stable. But in actual fact, the early church believed it was a cave that belonged to the shepherds. It could be. It doesn't have to. It doesn't, it doesn't actually say in the Bible where it was. Some people believed, as I said, that, that it, it was like an inn where uh, they had to stay where the animals would normally stay. But what are the actual facts about this? There is so much myth uh, about so many things, and people think that we're just reciting a myth. This is not a myth. It's a story of truth that's said in a particular time and place. And I've just listed four facts that I want to say what they are, and we'll see what they mean. Number one is the census. It was during the reign of Augustus as the Roman emperor. Uh, Caesar Augustus, verse 1 in chapter 2, issued a decree. Now, we know that Caesar Augustus reigned from the year 31 BC to the year AD 14. When we're told in chapter 1 about the birth of John the Baptist, that isn't set in a particular time. It, it, I mean, it is, but it, we're not specifically told that, whereas here we are told the time that it was, the during the time of Caesar, we're told where it took place, exactly where it took place. So this is something that occurred in a particular context, in a particular time, and a particular place. I understand that tomorrow night the BBC are going to start a four-part series entitled The Nativity. I'll be really interested to see what it's like because uh, the man who produced it said he believes the story of the Bible. They believe it did actually happen. I think he's tried to contextualize it and modernize it and so on. But for me, the fact is this did occur. Roughly around 2006 years ago, probably not at this time of year, um, probably in April, but we celebrate Jesus' birthday at this time of year. It's set in the context of a particular time and place. The Romans reorganized their administration, their empire, and they called for a fresh census for the purposes of taxation. The imperial decree was issued in Syria, and that's why in verse 2 it says, well, Quinarius was governor of Syria, because Judea, Israel was so small at that time, it was just a province of Syria. Now, some people, and I'm just going to really mention this without going into too much detail, though I've had to study this quite a lot because somewhat bizarrely, this is one of the number one objections that some people have to the Bible because they say that this verse proves that the Bible is not accurate because Quinarius did not become governor of Syria until 6 AD. King Herod died in 4 AD, and we know that Jesus was born before the death of Herod. Therefore, this could not have taken place. Now, there are lots of problems with that particular criticism and understanding, but uh, the simplest answers to it are, one, that we're aware that there were two censuses. Secondly, we're also aware that uh, Quinarius governed in Syria long before he officially became the governor of Syria. And thirdly, we know that Luke wasn't stupid and that he was just around this time. And if he was stating something that was clearly in all the records, 
then people would very easily have been able to refute it. If uh, questions like this really, really bother you, there is a whole literature that goes along with it, and I'd be more than happy to share it with you. But uh, I have to say, I've studied this for several years, this particular topic about the, the census and so on, because I always get asked this question in discussion and debate. And uh, for me, the, the evidence for what Luke says is absolutely overwhelming. There was a census. The Romans, it, they took a long time to do the census, by the way. It took at least 10 years to do it, and the Romans needed it for the purposes of taxation. So that's the first thing. There was this census. Secondly, Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, the town of David. He, it says here that he was pledged to be married and was expecting a child. When we say pledged to be married, again, it's a difference in culture. Legally, in that culture, it meant that they were married and engagement was binding. But they hadn't had the wedding and they hadn't consummated the marriage. I think um, that they went to Bethlehem because Joseph was originally from there and probably held property there. You had to register where you held property of some kind. We uh, read in Micah 5 and verse 2 about how the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, I want to, to say, even in that small detail about being born in Bethlehem, Joseph didn't go to Bethlehem because he thought that his wife-to-be would, would, was carrying the Messiah. He didn't go there in order to fulfill a prophecy. And when the Roman Caesar Augustus ordered that there be a census, he had no idea at all that a carpenter called Joseph would have to go to Bethlehem and that the one who was to be the king of kings would be born. This is just an example of how God can work all things for his own good and for his own purposes. Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem is a key part of the prophecy and of the Christmas stories, and it was the French writer Pascal who said that the prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ were more than sufficient to convince him of the truth of the gospel. Third thing is, Jesus was born in a part of a house that was reserved for animals, possibly a cave, possibly a stable. We don't really know. We do know that it was in poor circumstances. This was not the ideal place to give birth. We do tend to think of these cultures as being very primitive and not having our modern facilities and so on. And obviously in terms of hospitals, that is true. But also we, we know that in the Roman Empire and in Judea at that time, there, was, there were midwives, there were people who were very skilled and who were able to, to help in terms of giving birth. And that a, a child would normally, a, a mother-to-be would normally be put in a warm room. There would be attendants and uh, they would be well looked after. The last thing you want to do is to go on a long journey before you're about to give birth, to find yourself crowded out, to find yourself in a room with animals or four animals and then giving birth in those circumstances. 
You'll find the baby wrapped in clothes, uh, cloths and lying in a manger. The swaddling clothes, the reason that they did that, the midwives did that at that time, was they believed it was to help keep the limbs straight and to prevent the limbs from being harmed. But we know that. We, it's clearly stated that it was done at this time, in the time of Augustus, at a sense, the time of the census, that it was done in Bethlehem, and that Jesus was born in uh, less than ideal circumstances. And then the fourth thing we know is just about the shepherds. The shepherds heard of this through the angels, visited the child, and visited the parents in the manger, and spread the word concerning all they had heard and seen. Verse 18, all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Thus begins the whole story of Jesus Christ, because what what happens is, continually throughout Jesus' life, stories are told about him, word is spread about him. And when someone like Luke comes along and gathers it all together, he's not just making this up, he's relying on numerous sources. The shepherds, who they told, Mary, and, and, and others as well. One early church tradition was that it was actually the shepherds who owned the manger. And uh, that was one of the reasons how they knew where to find Jesus. We don't know if that's true or not, but we do know that it was the shepherds who first came to the baby Jesus and who spoke to Mary and revealed to Mary some of the things that the angels had told them. So those are four, I would say, four basic facts. I was disappointed yesterday to read, I think it was in the Scotsman or in the Times, Bishop Holloway saying, we know nothing about the birth of Jesus. Well, if you don't accept the Bible, you know nothing. So why bother being a bishop, actually, and why bother pontificating about the birth of Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. We do know. We know what God has revealed in his word about the birth of Jesus. Not a great deal, but what he does reveal is significant. What does it mean? The angels were to come and to reveal An angel is a messenger who reveals things. And the angels came to the shepherds and revealed to the shepherds what the birth of Jesus Christ meant. This is a real event that happened, but it's an event that is also a revelation. It's something that happened that tells us of who God is and what God has done for us. And it's good news. It's it's gospel. I bring you good news, verse 10, of great joy. That will be for all the people. It's good news, first of all, for the shepherds. Why? Because they were a despised people. We think of shepherds, I don't know if you remember seeing a television program, One Man and His Dog. Uh, We think of shepherds as being a kind of ideal life. Um, My grandfather was a shepherd, uh, shepherds' crooks and sheepdogs and so on. I kind of grew up with all of that. And we have kind of have a romantic notion of shepherds. But in biblical times, shepherds were the last job you wanted to do was to be a shepherd. It was considered the worst possible job to have. I don't know what the equivalent is in our culture, but imagine your child or you going home to your parents and saying, Mom, I want to be. And it's the one thing that your parents would not bring you up to be. They were a despised people. They would have been poor. 
They would not have been considered worthy of polite society. You would not invite them if you were, uh, if a child was being born in Bethlehem, you would not invite the shepherds to the christening if they had christenings. You would not invite them to the circumcision. They were a despised people. But this is news of great joy for them. Why? Because it is grace. Because it is undeserved. We have to try and grasp what it means. The coming of Christ into this world is entirely undeserved. It is not our right. It is not something that we deserve to happen to us. It is entirely God's grace. Some people say, why hasn't God done something or why didn't God come sooner? The answer is God didn't have to come at all, but he did in this astonishing way. It is grace and it is peace. That's what the angel says. Peace being the restoration of relationships between God and sinful people and all the blessings that come from that. Luke's readers would read this and they would try, and how does it bring peace? How does this bring peace between me and my husband? How does this bring peace between me and my children? How does this bring peace in a divided Israel? How does this bring peace in a world that is built on the strength and power of the Roman military? How can it possibly bring peace? How, when in 2010, we send one another Christmas cards saying peace? How does the birth of Jesus bring peace? Well, the whole Gospel of Luke goes on to explain how that is the case. It is through, ultimately, it is through his atoning sacrifice, his death on the cross, that peace is brought. But uh, uh, there's an awful lot more to it even than that. It's good news for the shepherds. It's no wonder that in verse 20 we read, they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they'd heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. That's a life-changing experience if ever there was one. Being out on the hills, going about your work, having this angelic visitation, and going and seeing the child born in the manger. Would they grasp and understand all that was involved, not at all. Maybe for the rest of their days, they would be finding out and learning more and observing when they hear about the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. I'm sure that the Holy Spirit revealed that to them as well. It's good news for the despised. It's good news for the shepherds. It's good news for all Israel. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, the misunderstanding there is to assume that that just means all the people everywhere in the world. No, the people is definite, and it it means the people of Israel, the people of Judea, the Jewish people. Again, that's the prophecy in Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem and Pathra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, one of you will come for me. One who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. The Jewish people had waited hundreds of years for that prophecy to be fulfilled. Many of the Jewish leaders would despise Jesus 
and crucify him. But Jesus did still come for the Jews. That's why the Apostle Paul, in his methodology, though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, went first of all to the synagogues in every city. He went first to the Jew to proclaim that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. It's interesting how in some areas of Christendom, people thought it was Christian to be anti-Jewish. That's just completely blasphemous and completely wrong. Jesus is a Jew, and Jesus comes as King of the Jews. And this is good news for Israel, for the Jewish people. And I think today we can still say that it is good news for the Jewish people. But it's also good news for the world. Verse 14, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And there it's extended for the whole world. In verse 32, we read this. Uh, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. What does the birth of Jesus mean? What does it reveal? It reveals good news for the despised and the poor. It's good news for the Jews and it's good news for the whole world. That's why, again, in our culture, people just don't grasp and don't, so many people don't grasp and don't get it. There are so many councils where people who are very secular humanist in their, in their thinking think, well, Christianity is just an ethnic religion. It's just for a few people. But it's not. I listened this morning to some people, uh, Muslims, who were saying, but we like to celebrate Christmas because Jesus is good news. Well, he is. I think, by the way, if you've got Muslim neighbors and friends, it's a a great thing to give a Christmas card at this time. Why? Most Muslims will not be offended at you giving a Christmas card. It's just we tend to think, well, they will be because we've fallen into this trap of this is our religion. It's our ethnic identity and so on. No, it's not. This is good news for the whole world. Even if the world doesn't want to hear that news. I think this evening we're going to be singing um, the carol, Joy to the World. And that's what it is. But I want to note just lastly, Mary's response. Verse 19, this amazing woman. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be Mary, maybe 18, 19 years old, young woman, Pregnant, but pregnant out of wedlock, if you like, in a culture where that was completely frowned upon. You are near the time where your child is to be born, and you have to go on a three-day journey. You must have been really scared. I suspect that Joseph, as a carpenter, would have had the whole house ready for the the, the child being born. It's a bit like, he's not here, so I'll mention him. Um, Tim and Bev, I know that Tim's been getting the house ready because he's very practical. And I, I, I see Joseph doing the same thing, getting the house ready for the child being born. The circumstances, the child would have been born at home with the midwife present. And then they have to go away because the census is taking place. And they arrive 
at what to them would be a relatively strange town. And there is no accommodation. And then she has to give birth, not when all the circumstances were as she would have wished. She and Joseph clearly did not intend to come to Bethlehem for the birth. And yet, look at verse 16. Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. I can imagine Mary lying there and thinking, why is this happening to me? This unbelievable birth, this unbelievable promise of the Messiah, this thing that I cannot explain. But if this were really true, why am I in this circumstance? This is so dangerous. And I suspect she would not have known about Bethlehem until the shepherds came and spoke to her, or perhaps even later later on when she reflected upon it. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And as she treasures up these things and ponders them in her heart, I see this young woman just thinking, wait a minute, in the town of David, in Bethlehem, I read about that. That begins to make sense. That's why that happened. Why in a manger? Because the town of Bethlehem would have been absolutely crowded, and it was crowded with people who were coming for the census returning to the home of their ancestors, the town of David. And I suspect that that night was not the only baby that was born or the only baby that was there. But there's only one baby in a manger. The shepherds found, they were told, you will, this is the sign. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And they come to Mary and they tell her. And she says, why am I doing this? Why, why is this happening to me? Why is my baby being born? And why is there no proper place for my baby to, to be laid in a manger? And then the shepherds turn up and say, this is what happened. We were told we would find this child lying in a manger. And she would know and see what had happened. And I think for her, there's a tremendous reassurance. She treasured them up and pondered them in her heart. The responsibility of shepherding the shepherd was not hers. There was a greater shepherd. And I think there's a very, very simple lesson in that for us, apart from the wonder of what actually happened in terms of the protection of Jesus, is the fact that when we ourselves are faced with circumstances that having received promises from God, it looks as though they are not going right. It looks as though it's not working out. Maybe we need to stop and we need to treasure these things and ponder them in our hearts and reflect that in the context of Christ, he works all things for the good of those who love him. If you are a Christian and at Christmas what's bothering you is the turkey, the family, the finances, just lots and lots of different things that apparently it's a time of greatest stress for, for most people. Maybe we need to think about all our stresses and all our burdens and all our concerns. And we need to know that, or we need to learn to cast them upon him because he does care for us. And how do we know that? We know that because of the baby in the manger. We know that because of Jesus Christ and what God did in and through him. 
If you are not a Christian, you need to look to Christ and you need to come to know who this baby is. Uh, I saw a a film this week that I would highly recommend. Um, It's in French, so forgive the French. Des hommes et des dieux, of men and gods. Uh, It has got subtitles, so don't worry. Uh, You don't have to take Natalie and Owen with you. Um, I found it an extraordinary film in lots of ways. It's a story of some Benedictine monks who um, are faced, who live in peace in Algeria, I think it is, and who are faced with um, Islamic extremism and the persecution that comes with that. But there's one remarkable scene, and it's beautifully done. It's just a typical French film. You know, there's hardly any plot, and it's all about characters and nuances and sound and cinematography and art and stuff. But it was it was fantastic. And there's this wonderful scene where the monk called Luke is sitting, talking. He's an old man, and he's talking to a young woman, who's a young Muslim woman, who's asking, how do you know what it's like when you fall in love? How do you know if you're in love? And she asks him, have you ever been in love? And he said, yes, lots of times. And he then said to her, she said, well, what happened? He said, I discovered a greater love. And he describes the, the love that he has for Jesus Christ. I think that's what we need to look for. We need to look for the greater love. And C.S. Lewis's Turn of the Tide says that's exactly what has happened. The greater love has come to us. I'm going to finish by reading um, my favorite poem about Christmas, and it's from John Milton. And uh, it is old English, so I put up the words as well so that you can follow them. And I think this is beautifully describes exactly what the, worth, what the birth of Jesus is about. So let's see if I can get this. This is the month and this the happy morn, wherein the son of heaven's eternal king, of wedded maid and virgin mother born, our great redemption from above did bring. For so the holy sages once did sing that he our deadly forfeit should release and with his father work us a perpetual peace. That glorious form, that light unsufferable, and that far-beaming blaze of majesty, wherewith he wanted heaven's high council table to sit the midst of trial unity, he laid aside, and here with us to be, forsook the courts of everlasting day, and chose with us a darksome house of mortal clay. Say, heavenly muse, Shall not thy sacred vein afford a present to the infant God? Hast thou no verse, no hymn, or solemn strain to welcome him to this his new abode? Now while the heaven by the sun's team untrod hath took no print of the approaching light, and all the spangled hosts keep watch in squadrons bright. See how far upon the eastern road the star-led wizards haste with odor sweet. O run, prevent them with thy humble ode, and lay it lowly at his blessed feet. Have thou the honor first, thy Lord, to greet, and join thy voice into the angel choir from out his sacred, secret altar touched with hallowed fire. Lord, we thank you that you came from glory to poverty, from light to darkness, that you might take us from poverty into the riches of your glory and from the darkness of this world into the light of your presence. May each of us know and experience that this Christmas, for we ask it in your name. Amen.